It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. You're listening to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, your host. Hello. Today on the show, from this... These are the sounds of days that are past. We record a new dimension of history. To this... The idea of this show, this new little show, is stories. Some by journalists and documentary producers like myself. Some just regular people telling their own little stories. Radio documentaries get real, or at least more real-sounding. That clip I played of Edward R. Murrow a moment ago, for instance, that may have felt immediate and genuine and authentic back in 1948 when it was first broadcast. But it sure seems awfully stagey now. On the other hand, that more recent bit from Ira Glass in 1995, now that sounds more like an actual guy in actual conversation, right? Or, or maybe Ira, too, is beginning to sound a little affected and mannered after all these years. Sorry, Ira... But we are talking here about realism, a style that imitates reality. And styles always change. Well, today we're going to talk about the changing sound of realism in radio with John Bewin. He's a longtime radio journalist. He's worked for Minnesota Public Radio, NPR, and American Radio Works. He currently teaches audio documentary making at Duke University. And he's the editor of a recent book called Reality Radio. It's a collection of essays by great radio documentary creators like Ira Glass talking about their craft. In the hour ahead, John and I are going to listen to and discuss some examples of reality radio from across the years. And we're going to start off here with one of the pioneers of the form, Norman Corwin. He was a kind of maestro of elaborate and complex radio productions back in the 1930s and 40s. And this here is an example from maybe his most famous work. It's called We Hold These Truths, and it was created for the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. It was broadcast on December 15, 1941, just a week after the Pearl Harbor attack. And it was a huge deal. Tens of millions of Americans huddled around their radios to listen to it. We Hold These Truths was produced live in the studio with famous actors like Lionel Barrymore and Orson Welles. The background music was provided by the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, and the narrator, well, you'll recognize him. Suppose that we stopped here in modern Washington before this shrine were to return, go back, go back a little north by east in time and space to one bright afternoon in Philadelphia, that fine fall day when deputies from 12 free states subscribed their names to a new blueprint of a new society. And of the independence of the United States the 12th, in witness whereof we have hereunto subscribed our names, George Washington, President and Deputy from Virginia. Now, gentlemen, we are ready for your signatures by geographical progression north to south. The deputies from New Hampshire will please sign first. John Langdon. John Langdon. Nicholas Gilman. So that was uh, Norman Corwin's production of We Hold These Truths, celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights, uh, broadcast in 1941 in December on American radio stations. 
we heard Jimmy Stewart there, you know, the narrator taking us back to the Constitutional Convention with the Founding Fathers. Um, John, not exactly a, a documentary in the modern sense. Not exactly. And, and I think that, uh, yes, it was it's sort of like this is, I, I believe, about as close as people were coming back in those days to what we think of the documentary, in part for technological reasons. The things that we take for granted now as documentary producers, the ability simply to take a small recorder out, record people, and then come back and put it together. They couldn't do that back then. Recorders were not in any way portable. They, uh, the smallest recorders w uh, would fill the trunk of a car and weighed 100 pounds. So, um, it, it, you know, this was just much more common. It was, it was done in a studio. It was scri scripted. Notice the writing is not just, um, you know, it's not just written. It's, it's written in a very writerly way. And it's, it's really acted and performed. So, uh, but it, you know, it is documentary, I think, in the sense, and sometimes these were called documentaries, this kind of work, in the sense that it was about uh, real stuff. It wasn't overtly radio drama. And some of that, for, for instance, we heard an actor reading from the Constitutional Convention, uh, which would have been, you know, documented words uh, that were real and so on. So it's, you know, it's a blend, but but I think that's, yeah, it's, it just sounds very different, doesn't it, from, from anything that we would <laughs> hear now. Well, it was all staged. It was all produced in the studio. Um, I, I'd like to uh, play another example uh, from slightly later uh, of something that maybe comes a little bit closer to a documentary in the sense that instead of total reenactments, it includes bits of actual, historic, real sound. And this is uh, Edward R. Murrow. Everybody knows Edward R. Murrow, the great radio and television broadcaster, um, narrating a, a piece from a series called I Can Hear It Now, uh, covering the years of the Depression through World War II. These are the sounds of days that are past. We record a new dimension of history, a scrapbook of sounds from 13 years of violence and achievement, part of the greatest mass adventure man has yet undertaken. A voice can cut through the hazy fog of time and bring yesterday's images sharply into focus. Do you recognize this voice? You hold the distinction of being the only nation in the history of the world that ever went to the poorhouse in an automobile. That was the voice of Will Rogers, trying to teach America how to laugh its way through a depression. 1933 was dark all over the world. Japan was already in Manchuria, and the League of Nations was dying in Geneva. In Germany, the Reichstag fire was history. So was the Weimar Republic. In Italy, Benito Mussolini had translated a people's search for security into savage conquest. In rich, fertile America, fear and uncertainty lay heavy upon the land. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. The rich baritone of uh, Edward R. Murrow there narrating events in recent history at the time. So that's sounding a little bit more like what we'd call a documentary. A little bit more, yeah. At least, right. It's uh, it's it's archival audio of of actual uh, people and events, rather than someone pretending to be <laughs> someone. <laughs> um, one thing I'm noticing, of course, in these older pieces is the is the role of the narrator. The narrator isn't just telling the story. The narrator is almost like pronouncing from on high. You know. Yes. I mean, to be a narrator, you in the first place, you had to have a kind of authoritative and maybe authoritarian voice. You know. A paternal voice. Right. 
Yes, and and you know people people talk about the voice of God, and it's a cliche, but that that was pretty close, wasn't it? It's a little really accessible. Cecil B. DeMille as as God, um, and it's still very presented, uh, uh, you know, in, in that sense. Um, and it was going to take a long time. I, I think that you know when public radio went on the air in the early 1970s, I think by then there was, from the start, a very different sensibility in the sense that you had um, people, when you did have narrators, they you know spoke in a kind of relatively ordinary and conversational way. And uh, yeah, it was less, much less the stentorian voice, but there's still kind of a, a way of speaking on uh, in a public radio news feature that is there's a certain kind of convention to it, um, mm-hmm. but that has begun to open up uh, as well in some quarters. Mm. Well, I, I spoke to Bob Edwards once, and I think he he sort of typified the NPR sound for many years. And he said that when mm-hmm. he started, you know, instead of shouting to a, a, an imaginary audience uh, from a stage, he thought of talking to his aunt or somebody on a front porch, mm-hmm. you know, an intimate sound. Right. But he still had the baritone. He still had the, you know, the the big male voice. So there's authority in that voice. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. um let's zoom ahead from Edward R. Murrow to a public radio reporter, um, circa 2001. This story really ought to start in slavery. But then again, in, say, the 1950s, a few generations after the end of slavery, Life for black Mississippians looked and felt much like it had during those centuries in bondage. Uh, when I was about 15 or something, we was at the church at the uh, church association in the country. That was kind of a big day, you know. MacArthur Cotton grew up in East Central Mississippi. He still lives in the state. He remembers the time in the 1950s when a black sharecropper in Winston County took the day off to go to a church gathering without his white boss's permission. He didn't go to plow that day, but, you know, his boss man wanted him to plow. So that actually, John, uh, I popped that on you. That was you from a documentary you put together, I guess, which was released in, in 2001? Yes, a piece called Oh Freedom Over Me. That was for American Radio Works, although actually it was... Uh, a, a refurbished or kind of updated and reworked version of a piece that I originally did in 1994, a PRI special uh, uh, on the 30th anniversary of Freedom Summer, the summer of 1964. So this was a, a, a reworked version. How did it feel to, to narrate that piece? How, were you comfortable being a narrator? <laughs> uh, n- hmm. Not altogether. Uh, in, in fact, actually, the first, the, the earlier version of that piece... Um, I had uh, Julian Bond narrate, and um, you know, of course, he was uh, the spokesman for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee (SNCC) in in the nineteen in nineteen sixty four. So, in one sense, a a kind of player in the story. But it, I had mixed feelings about it because I I wasn't sure. Uh, you know, then seven years later, when I was reworking it. I I listened back and I thought Julian Bond a little bit sounded a, a little bit. Uh, like a deity. <laughs> so by this point, philosophically, I think I would have felt that um, there's something more kind of straightforward and transparent about the reporter and the person who went out and did all these interviews and pulled all this together and did the and did the writing to to go ahead and and read it. But on the other hand, the downside I think was, uh, and I, as I listen to to the piece now, I sort of feel like you know, 
I was very, very far removed from that story. I was three years old uh, and growing up in Minnesota in 1964. Um, so it was very much, uh, you know, this kind of uh, detached, you know, reporter who is has has gone out and gathered uh, information and done interviews and talked to people, but has no uh, direct connection to the story. And that, of course, is the long running convention in broadcast news: the narrator, and it goes with this this notion of objectivity that we we've had for so long in journalism, that it's almost desirable for the for that person to not be. A character, mm-hmm. and I think that's an, been a very important trend over the last twenty years in public radio. In some of the more interesting documentary work, is a kind of uh, break with that tradition. Mm-hmm. So the ideal of a narrator uh, in the in the old days, I mean, even, until quite recently, was someone who is very detached, right, very aloof, um, and uh, sort of the omniscient, almost disembodied. <laughs> right. Voice, right, sort of standing outside, sort of standing off stage. And describing the events on stage, um, and I think you know, increasingly we've moved in in various ways with different producers doing this in different ways t- toward uh, ha- having a narrator who is on stage. <clears throat> Maybe it's the uh, uh, a central character who is who's narrating the piece, um, or the producer uh, it is a character in some way in the story, mm. and, and they're narrating the piece. Mm. Um, there are different ways of doing that, but that's been a really important. Uh, trend in, in these last uh, 15, 20 years, you know, seeing I, it more and more. I'm thinking that probably one influence on this whole evolution, aside from the obvious um, growing informality uh, of American society and the distrust of sort of top-down authority, uh, the idea of, you know, democratizing everything. Um, let's take the journalist off the podium um, and put them in the action, but also the force of satire, because I was thinking about Norman Corwin's sound, the old radio sound, you know, with all those dramatizations and how actually people like the Firesign Theater based a lot of their satire on exactly that sound. In, in fact, mm. uh, they cite Norman Corwin as a, as a great influence. That's right. I mean, it just sounds so so different and almost alien now that it's it's almost a self-parody, and that mm-hmm. is not at all to set, to take anything away from Norman Corwin in his time he was absolutely he was a genius and he still stands as one of the great broadcast writers I think we've ever had but yes it just uh, we've we've really things have evolved well I, I spoke to some of the Firesign Theater members recently and they cited both him as a source of you know for the first satire but also their great admiration of what he did and the techniques he pioneered were the same techniques they were using in their satires that is you know, blending all kinds of sounds, uh, background and sound effects, and again, many, many voices, dramatizations into a what we now call sound-rich production. So, yeah. And by the way, he's still alive. He's 101 years old. And last I heard, he was still making recordings. Wow. <laughs> wow. I was aware that he was alive because I remember actually Mary Beth Kirshner's uh, piece from last year for his 100th birthday, but I didn't know he was still well, my information comes from a few years ago, so I don't know if it's still absolutely true to this okay. day, but he was doing it well into his 90s for sure. Well, we were talking about the uh, the growing informality and uh, you know immersion of the narrator, and I, I want to go now to one of the most important figures in that process of all. Um, we're going to hear from Ira Glass. Okay, well, what? About a minute. Well, one minute five into the new show. Right now, it is stretching in front of us. A perfect future yet to be fulfilled. 
an uncharted little world. Little baby coming into the world, no little scars or anything. Nobody hearing my words right now is thinking, Oh man, remember that show? Back when it used to be good? Oh sure, I never missed that show. Back in the old days, back in the first couple years, before it got so-called popular, back when it was still good. And actually, I think that, that, that force, that, that human desire, to say, to say that, is so strong. To say that I was there, I was there back when that show was good. That force is so strong, it is so basic to who we are as people, that I know, um, okay, what are we, we are, we are two minutes into the program. I know that somewhere out there, one or two of you are saying, oh sure, I used to listen to that show back in the, back in the first 30 seconds. Back when it used to be really good. Remember that? Remember that back back when they used to do all that crazy stuff? When they had that guy on the phone? Remember back then? Well, from WBEZ in the glorious city of Chicago, Illinois, the name of this show is Your Radio Playhouse. I'm, uh, I'm your MC. <laughs> I'm your MC, Ira Glass. Your Radio Playhouse with Ira Glass <laughs> <laughs> from 1995, November 1995. That was wow. the very, very first stab at what became This American Life. Uh, we're talking about the evolution of radio documentaries. I mean, that was, um, what would you compare that to in, in evolutionary <laughs> terms? That was like when the fish first crawled out of the water or something. It was a, that was a big step. <laughs> it was a big step. You know, and... and um, I think Ira would probably be the first to say that he maybe sometimes gets too much credit, mm-hmm. um, you know, for being kind of sui generis and, and just, you know, being this entirely new creature and blowing the, the walls off of public radio. Because, you know, there were people around like Jay Allison and the Kitchen Sisters and Scott Carrier, for instance, who had been telling his stories for, for some time and then kind of became one of the uh, standard bearers of this American life. Um, but, but to create a whole show and, and, and as opposed to having those kinds of pieces that were, you know, would appear periodically, you know, the work of Jay Allison or the Kitchen Sisters appearing periodically in a news show, like All Things Considered, to create a show with that, this kind of tone, you know, taking itself so unseriously, um, not positioning itself as a, as a show about weighty issues, but a, but a show about just, you know, life itself. Um, yes, it was absolutely a, a major breakthrough just in creating space and inspiring a whole lot of people to say, hmm, maybe I should rethink what I'm doing on the radio. What could I do that would be halfway as cool as that? You know, <laughs> yes, that absolutely, that absolutely happened. You know, um, we should say that Ira had cut his teeth a bit in fun and creative radio just prior, I think, to your radio playhouse and then This American Life in a show on WBEZ in Chicago that he did with uh, Gary Cavino, to this day a, a very respected radio editor, and I guess uh, Linda Berry, um, the cartoonist and, and I think then girlfriend of Ira Glass. So he, he'd been practicing a bit uh, before he rolled out this new show. Right. And, of course, he'd been a reporter for NPR for years and had um, just often in his, even in his, his news reporting, just brought a kind of 
flair and a sense of humor and and just a, a, a touch that sort of made his pieces stand out. And, and I think he had been thinking, uh, obviously, pretty hard for a long time about uh, how can we do this whole thing differently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's, you know, it's, it's been, it's been, he's had an enormous influence. It's hard to overstate it. Well, to the point where many people can't imagine uh, aspiring to anything other than sounding like Ira Glass. I mean, many people entering the radio profession. You must run into that as a teacher, right? <laughs> <laughs> I do, although I, I don't know. I don't know if it's that so much. I don't find that many people who want to sound like Ira Glass. I think people are smart enough to know that that's probably not doable and probably not the best idea. But that general kind of, uh, and Ira himself uses this word a lot, knowingness, you know, sort of knowing tone. Uh, and that's embodied in that very fir- the fir- first moments that we just heard there of that show where he's kind of anticipating, all right, so we're doing this thing with a radio show. I know maybe what you're thinking and this sort of meta quality to it. We're going to talk about the fact that we're doing a radio show. We're not just going to launch into it in a kind of straightforward way. Uh, A lot of those kinds of uh, approaches and attitudes, yes, people are, uh, a lot of people want to do that. And why not? It it strikes me listening to that primordial uh, version of This American Life, that his chops were already all there. I mean, the ability to speak in a way that sounds completely spontaneous, completely as though it's arising in the moment. And in fact, I'm betting that Ira had thought out that monologue. He might have written a few things down, but his delivery makes you think, wow, he's talking off the top (laughs) of his head. And uh, that's a rare gift. Um, And to do it in a way that says, I'm no better than you are. I'm just a guy. Uh, I'm not going to lay down what reality is. I'm going to join you in this adventure, you know, come along and uh, we're on the same level. I mean, that, that that's, it's, again, it seems like the natural extension of that process we've been talking about. Right. And it's certainly not a voice that, uh, w- that you would put next to Edward R. Murrow's <laughs> voice um, or, or Norman Corwin, you know, or the people, or John Barrymore's. Uh, he's just, it's a regular guy voice and, uh, and a regular guy way of speaking. Um, and yes, he's a, he's a master at at sounding conversational, sounding like he's thinking as he's talking. And and honestly, I don't know to what extent, yeah, what what sort of script he had in front of him when he did Stoney does something like that. But uh, it sure doesn't sound like it's uh, scripted in anything like the way of 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 most of the work that came before. Mm, not taking itself terribly seriously, even though mm-hmm. it gets into some serious territory. Of course, I mean, yeah. Very important stories uh, coming to us from This American Life over the years. Um, while Ira sounds freeform and spontaneous, he's actually one of the most systematic thinkers about uh, his medium ever, I think. Uh, and, and your book, which we, ha- we haven't uh, referenced yet, but it's Reality Radio. It's a series of essays that you and who was your co-editor? Uh, my colleague here at, at CDS, Alexa Dilworth, is the co-editor. You and Alexa Dilworth uh, edited essays by great radio creators like Ira Glass talking about their craft. And Ira has always been a guy who very, very um, analytically approached radio. You wouldn't know it from his sound, but he has broken it down to um, you know the, the, almost the uh, atoms and molecules <laughs> to find out what makes a radio piece and what makes a good radio story uh, what it is. Yes, it's really striking how uh, frank he is about really the formula for mm-hmm, this American mm-hmm, Life piece. Mm-hmm. 
And he talks about uh, essentially you, you've got a story, and this, it has to be a good story. It has to have surprises in it. So there's the story. That's one thing. The second thing, it has to mean something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? you know, so there, and there has to be some larger uh, lesson about life, even if it's you know, kind of a whimsical one. But there has to be something, and that that needs to be part of the radio piece is, is a kind of stepping back and uh, reflecting a little bit on, on what the story means. And then sometimes that is the twist or the surprise element is, here's this story, and you might think it means this, or at one time I thought it meant this, but as I think about it more, come to think of it, it means this other thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes that's the the kind of the surprise or the twist that makes it feel fresh, makes it feel like something you haven't heard uh, before, let alone a hundred times before. So yes, he's very, um, he's very, very clear about what he's up to. And he talks a lot about uh, hard work. And this is, I think, one of the, my favorite things about Ira's essay in the book. And one reason that I have my students read it, um, uh, and that is, you know, he's known as this charismatic, talented guy, and he certainly is that. But he talks about uh, the hard work that it took of spending many years getting any good at radio, which is what he he claims and, and, and actually makes a pretty good case for it, that it took him a while. And secondly, just with any piece that, that the show is doing or that he's doing, how much work goes into, you know, asking question after question to try to get at something interesting or to get draw out something surprising and interesting from the person being interviewed uh, and the many stories that are thrown out because they, they never quite get there. Uh, so it's really about the, the title of his essay. Let me think if I see if I can get this right. I don't have it in front of me. Harvesting Luck as an Industrial Product. <laughs> So he's talking about uh, how you have to work and work and work until you get lucky, uh, that that's basically what makes uh, the magic of a good radio story. Mm. Do you have any idea how many person hours goes into a single episode of This American Life? <laughs> I, don't, I don't, and I don't know if he would even be, be able to generalize about it. Uh, but I believe he says that they, they throw out something like a third of the pieces that they commission. And there's money spent on, on those pieces, you know, that people get paid for the work they do, despite the fact that their piece gets thrown out in the end. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it varies. I'm sure some pieces come together quite uh, relatively easily and some get labored over like crazy, you know. That's one thing that I would say about all of this kind of work, the kind of work that is, uh, in various ways, is different from a, a straight-ahead news story. Whether it's a, a, a really very narrative, grounded kind of story like, like most of the work on This American Life or a kind of layered, sound-rich um, documentary that takes us somewhere, certainly, you know, a show like Radiolab, what sets it apart is it does sound like a lot of work went into it, and in fact it did. It takes longer, mm. and it sounds like it. Mm. You know, it's a highly highly produced show, This American Life and, and Radiolab also. Um, the amount of editing that goes into achieving that seemingly natural sound that you hear in This American Life um, is is tremendous. Uh, a lot of time collecting just the right bits of an interview, the right bits of other uh, sound, and uh, choosing the right music and editing it all together. It, it's it's yeah, it's it's extremely labor intensive. I thought I'd um, play just a bit more from 
another This American Life producer, uh, one of the best known, Alex Bloomberg. When Harriet Lerner was a girl, her family was going through some lean years. There were two kids. The house needed repairs. There wasn't much money for holiday gifts. Harriet was seven and she wanted a bike. Her sister Susan was 12. She wanted a set of encyclopedias. But when they came downstairs on Christmas morning, there were only two small boxes waiting for them. What was inside them, and we both had exactly the same gift, were these real ugly metal tissue holders painted black with these corny red and yellow roses. Um, They were painted with these cheesy-looking red and yellow roses. And I looked at my tissue box, and I started to cry. And I looked at my big sister, Susan, and I thought, of course, she was going to cry, too. And she looked like maybe she was going to cry. But then she sort of put on a big smile. And then she told me that the boxes were painted by trained monkeys. The box became Harriet's prized possession. She kept it on display in her room through elementary school, through high school. Friends asked her about it. She'd say, oh, yeah was painted by trained monkeys. Nobody ever challenged her on it, maybe because she believed it herself so completely. That was Alex Bloomberg, the longtime This American Life producer, from a piece called A Little Bit of Knowledge. Uh, now, you you said earlier, John, that uh, not everybody can sound like Ira Glass, but I think Alex Bloomberg <laughs> comes awfully close. True, true. <laughs> and I, and I, I've wondered sometimes about, uh, I don't know if he set out to sound like Ira or if he just, you know, talks Kind of like Ira, but he, yes, he kind of does sound like Ira. <laughs> but we heard some of the classic ingredients of a This American Life piece there. Um, we heard, you know, um, Alex's narration, which sounds like it's coming from a young person who might, you know, be a friend of the people in the story, rather than the, again, paternal, traditional radio narrator. And we heard, um, a, you know, a single intimate voice describing her story, and then the music kicking in and, like, tugging at our emotions, you know, music. Precisely timed to add a little juice to the uh, the, the feeling of the story. Um, I guess my question uh, is, and I, I think you know by now, this American Life having been around sixteen years, it really does have a style, a very very identifiable style. You could turn the radio way down and put a lot of static in, and you'd still know it's this American Life um, the instant you heard it. Has it become a little formulaic? Um, is it? Like Norman Corwin, was it fresh in its day, but is it losing something? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, um, I think it is. It has become another kind of convention, uh, um, and there, there's, there seems to be kind of a certain way of talking on on this American life, uh, so that um, you know, for for the many people who have done stories for that show, um, you know, they don't all sound that way but there's a certain kind of flatter kind of affectless way of talking uh but you know i mean there's nothing there's nothing really wrong with that it certainly works and people want to listen year after year and they still do great work one thing i've noticed in the last couple of years is that they seem to be doing more interestingly they seem to be doing more really hard journalism Mm -hmm. um with the planet money stuff and some of the other kind of longer and alex bloomberg has done some Work that's really essentially investigative or quasi-investigative journalism, which is, which is interesting. Uh, you know that in a way, 
that uh, they they sort of made their mark by doing something other than the news and something other than traditional journalism and maybe a way of freshening what they do and bringing us a, a different sort of heft and uh, freshness to what they do is to 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 go back to the, to that uh imperative to tell people stuff they didn't know but but still with a with many of the kind of traits of this american life um in the way that it's presented so it, it, that's been an interesting thing to see yeah so so maybe uh the balance has shifted from those you know sort of intimate stories uh you know family relationships and things like that to stories about the economy about uh criminal justice about uh, U.S. foreign policy, uh, you know, they've done shows in Haiti and they did a show on Guantanamo. Uh, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. It has it has evolved in that direction. You know, uh, one thing they they do really well, and I think has become very widespread in radio production, is the use of music. Um, mm -hmm. Now, we heard in your radio documentary from 2001, you know, you were using music. And, and and documentarians were using music, uh, you know, t as as background. But the precise way in which um, this American life brings it in uh, very strategically uh, as a kind of emotional force in a story, in a way that you don't really notice but has a powerful effect. Uh, again, I'm interested in your feeling about that. There are some people who think music is cheating. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't. I, yeah, and that was that was uh, uh, for a long time. That was essentially the rule at NPR News was that you didn't use music, certainly not in that way. And I would make the distinction too between the, the the way that I was using it in a program like Oh Freedom Over Me, or you know I've done a documentary about the Korean War where you had you know all, all the music was from 1951 to 1953, right? Where it's where it's evoking a time, it's kind of setting a, a tone, uh, and and it's it's I would say serving a kind of traditional documentary purpose in a way or at least relatively traditional and that that what this american life does is is different in the sense that the music isn't uh isn't adding content in that way mm -hmm. it's it's really it's really more of a, a a tonal kind of element i i i like to say that um i think of it as oftentimes the way it functions it's it's sort of like a it's sort of like the producer or the storyteller standing off to the side and looking at the at the listener and kind of raising an eyebrow mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of like mm -hmm. they're just bringing that music up at a, some, at a point where somebody is saying something, it might be kind of subtle, but it's like, you're, you're getting this, right? You're getting all the mm -hmm. meaning of what's being said here, mm -hmm. that there's something a little bit funny or ironic, or there's something uh, profound or, you know, and it's kind of ser serving as to just kind of highlight, you know, 20 seconds of a, of a piece. And yes, that was considered essentially taboo uh, under the, traditional uh, journalistic ideas that you're trying to uh you're trying to tell the listener how they should feel about something and that was sort of considered that, to go against that objectivity notion that we talked about earlier well how do and, you feel uh, about it now i mean because it, it, you're absolutely right that it does tell you how you should feel it does make you feel even more strongly about something than the, than the uh the story itself would otherwise have done it depends on the kind of piece you're doing i i don't, I, I don't think of a story like that one, you know, it's not like, uh, uh, it would be different if you are, <clears throat> you know, doing a piece that has sort of public policy or political ramifications on a news show, and then you're going to bring up, you know, sad music at a point where you're trying to tell the listener, 
you know, you should feel a certain way politically about this thing. That's 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 different. I, I guess I just don't take it so seriously or see it as some kind of a journalistic violation in mm-hmm. the context of a show like This American Life. Mm-hmm. It's usually not, the issues aren't that weighty. It's usually more, it's, it's a quasi-literary show as mm-hmm. often as not. Mm-hmm. And it's usually used in that way. So I don't have a problem with it. Uh, and I think even at NPR, they don't do it very often, but I think there are certain kinds of stories where they will allow somebody to do it when it when it has that kind of a flavor, when it's not uh, seen as in the service of some, you know, issue that's kind of, that, that's journalistic that, you know, NPR news as a news organization needs to be neutral on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would, mm-hmm. I would, I would make that distinction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, even when you're doing, quote, journalism, you know, straight journalism, traditional journalism, you're telling a story, you know, you are pulling on the levers of emotion and feeling, maybe in subtle ways, but you're definitely doing it. Even in constructing, you know, a, a story along a, a narrative line, you're doing something, you're manipulating something. And uh, it gets us back to the idea that though documentaries are about reality, and I know documentary filmmakers have wrestled with this for a very long time, though they're about reality and they're trying to create the feeling of reality, they're still not reality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a highly uh, constructed, manipulated reality. And that's something I, I I talk a little bit about in the introduction to the book. And that, that it, the, these and all of the essayists in the book are very uh, upfront about that. There's no... They all talk about trying to reach for something real and trying to create, in a way, an, uh, an experience for the for the listener that will make the listener feel something and not just telling them some facts but sort of taking the listener on a journey, creating an experience that will help them feel the reality of the world. But doing that, essentially, I, I, I use the phrase that the work that's celebrated in the book is... Um, you know, documentary, radio documentaries meaning true stories told artfully. Mm. And it's really this blend of some real stuff, somebody's true story, and, um, and events and facts and, and interviews and oral history and all that, but assembled absolutely with a huge uh, participation and input by the creator. And so that it's, you know, it's both and, you know, it's, it's, it's reality and it's, um, I, I hesitate a little bit to use the word art, although I think it's, sometimes it's art. Certainly there's a whole lot of craft and, and artistry that goes into a lot of this work. Well, we've talked about how um, creating that feeling of, of genuine reality, the you are there feeling, the feeling that um, there's nothing between you and and the story, nothing getting in the way, has resulted in... Um, downplaying the the narrator, taking the narrator from, you know, from the balcony shouting down at you down into the the audience itself, right? So Mm. when we heard that piece a moment ago by Alex Bloomberg, again, there's this plain spoken, unaffected way he has of talking that makes you feel like, wow, you know, maybe he's really part of the story. He's not just narrating it. But there's another approach to that, and that is getting the narrator out altogether, just having the story tell itself, sort of. And uh, I think the masters of that form are the Kitchen Sisters. Yes, yeah, they've they've they certainly were pioneers, and they've done some of the most memorable and beautiful work uh, with that approach for, <clears throat> geez, going on thirty years, I believe. Uh, Nikki Silva and uh, uh, and Davia Nelson, um, you know, their work is just terrific. The series like uh, 
Lost and Found Sound, which they did with Jay Allison. More recently, Hidden Kitchens for a number of years has been running, and uh, and now their newest series, The Hidden World of Girls. And it's usually a uh, a kind of a stew of interview tape edited to within an, an inch of its life, as they freely uh, admit, and uh, and almost always um, music that that adds a kind of uh, uh, layers of, of meaning and of feeling to the piece. Well, let's hear an example of their work. This is from their Hidden Kitchen series that ran on NPR a couple of years ago, sort of little-known stories about food preparation and uh, cooking. Uh, and this particular one um, is about the slave chefs in the White House in uh, the early days of the United States. My name is William Seal. I've written several books on the history of the White House. George Washington took office. He wasn't a king. He was a combination of head of state and prime minister. It never happened before. It was very delicate with him how to proceed from the diplomatic tradition. So food became very important. And he had a slave chef named Hercules. It was Hercules who really began this long connection between presidents and African-American cooks. My name is Sharon Conrad, historian in African-American cuisine. Hercules traveled with Washington to Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the U.S. capital prior to Washington, D.C. As we know, George Washington had wooden teeth. Even with those hand-carved teeth, he enjoyed good cuisine. My name is Joe Randall. I founded the African-American Chefs Hall of Fame. Wherever George Washington was, at the Capitol or in his home, he wanted Hercules cooking. So that was a piece from the Hidden Kitchen series by the Kitchen Sisters, uh, Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson. Um, by the way, uh, both Nikki and Davia started at this station, where I'm coming from, KUSP here in Santa Cruz, yeah. in the 70s. And uh, they really taught themselves. I think they were working with, was it cassette recorders at that time? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the way they put together a multi-layered piece like we just heard was to cut tape. They would... <laughs> <laughs> splice pieces of tape together, uh, record, you know, multi-track recordings until they had all those those layers of sound, music, voices. Did you start in the tape-cutting era? Did you ever do that? Oh, absolutely, yes, for about 10 years. It wasn't really until, uh, in fact, I, I worked at Minnesota Public Radio. We went digital in about 1996 or so, seven, and we were several years ahead of NPR, so, so reel-to-reel tape was was uh, pr- predominant in in public radio until just about until the turn of the century. I think we can say the turn of the century now, right? Meaning two thousand. Um, so many of us spent many years, yes, with chalk and razor blades, uh, and then you would do in order to do, to do layers. Yes, you had multiple reel-to-reel decks all running at one time, stopping and starting, and ha- an engineer with hands on faders trying to make it all happen, you know, sort of come together at one time, recording, you know, with one tape deck, recording everything else. So I, so I said it wrong when I said multi-track. Instead of laying down multiple tracks on one reel-to-reel tape recorder, you guys were playing multiple tapes simultaneously and sort of mixing by simply recording all those those tape players? That's right. You, you recorded to the, you, you'd have maybe three decks that were, were playback decks, where you had the actualities and the and the and the uh, if you had narration tracks they were on there and you had your sound beds and so on and then the fourth one and just you know you might may have four going to the fifth one or whatever, 
but uh, yeah, you were recording them all in in real time and mixing it that way. There were there were multi track decks, and I and uh, but but I I doubt uh, that if the Kitchen Sisters, I doubt in the seventies and eighties that they were using multi track. I bet it was the way I described. I came along later, and the, the way <laughs> I learned and the way it's done now is it's all on computer. You just take all right. your sound. You put it into a computer program, an audio editing program, and you can see multiple tracks as as sort of waveforms. Um, these look like waves, and you have multiple tracks, and you can play with them any way you want. And it's so much easier. I can't even imagine having to slice uh, audio tape with a razor blade and uh, and then splice it together and do all the things you did. I mean. I am in utter awe of what uh, that generation <laughs> of radio editors did. No, it, it, it's it's gotten so much easier, and and also, but but it, it one thing that hasn't happened. It doesn't mean you spend less time doing it now. It just means that you you tinker all the more, and you get the perfectionism just allows you to run wild, and you know, moving sound constantly. It's completely typical to be moving. Okay, I need to move that one tenth of a second. Um, to put it right where I want it and have the, you know, so it was just, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, much looser back then. But, but, uh, you know, so much of it sounded really good and, and, and holds mm -hmm. up well to this day. Um, yeah, again, I'm just, uh, I'm just totally impressed. Um, so the Kitchen Sisters and others have gotten the narrator out of the story. The story seems to tell itself. The voices give you enough information. They identify themselves and through this sort of collage process, an entire story gets told without anybody having to step up and say, I, I'm the boss or I'm going to lay I'm going to lay it out for you. You know, right. I would just add that that a lot of people, though, and, and there's and people for shorthand do use the term unnarrated. They'll talk about oh, that. You know, I'm doing this piece and it's unnarrated. And that's the shorthand for meaning I, as the pr reporter producer, I'm not going to be narrating and there's not going to be written script that somebody's going to be reading but the kitchen sisters uh dave i say um joe richmond you know the the, the masters of that uh of the of that work are, would all say it's not really that they're unnarrated they you actually do need a narrator most of the time for it to really hold up very well you need somebody who's kind of taking the listener by the hand and telling them the story it's just that it's not me as the producer it's this it's this other person. So it's more like uh, they're sort of facilitating the telling of the story by the quote-unquote subject of the story rather than stepping in. I, I think it's an important thing uh, for people to understand. But you're right. It still is a very, very significant uh, difference in, in the aesthetic and the feel of a piece. Uh, yeah. And you know, I think the way I put it was, was, was quite naive because you're absolutely right. There is a constructed narrative. You get people to tell the story. Um, which sounds more authentic than someone who's a, a reporter or producer telling the story, but it's still uh, a shaped story. There's still a producer's hand in everything uh, that gets said and uh, the sequence in which it gets said and also in what is never heard. Um, so if you want to be skeptical, um, you are still being led by the hand, but just in a more subtle way. <laughs> well, yeah. In, in fact, I think that... Uh... There's a little bit of irony in effect uh, in the sense that um, I, th I think in a way that it's more of a kind of sleight of hand and more of an illusion mm -hmm. w to do a piece with no narrator because uh, there is in fact this producer who made all these decisions starting with 
I'm going to point my microphone at this person <laughs> and ask some questions and decide what the story is going to be and you know and, and from and, and from there on so there's something in a way almost more transparent about the producer than having their voice in the piece mm -hmm. um, and I say that as somebody who myself I did I did narrated work nothing but narrated work for 20 years and now I find myself doing mostly unnarrated work your your latest work actually is a non-narrated piece it's a, a series of pieces um called Travels with Mike? Right. Travels with Mike in Search of America 50 Years After Steinbeck. And uh, there you are, practically in Steinbeck country. Um, as people will know there that Travels with Charlie came out in 1962. It was 1960, fall of 1960, that Steinbeck made that journey with his dog Charlie from one end of the country and back. And I decided to do a project... Um, in a very, very loose sense, create, re retracing some of his steps. I didn't drive uh, for 10,000 miles, didn't take the dog. Mike is the microphone. And what I did was to do just a series of half a dozen pieces uh, in key locations along Steinbeck's itinerary, his travels with Charlie itinerary, places from Sag Harbor, New York, to Fargo, North Dakota, out California, Monterey, and then New Orleans, sort of following his route. Uh, and in each place collaborated with an artist uh, who's living and working in that place. And they are the voices of the pieces, and they kind of bounce off what Steinbeck said about that place 50 years ago and reflect on the spirit of the time today. Um, why don't we listen to a bit from your visit to Monterey? I'm Diana Garcia. I'm a poet and writer and a professor in the Creative Writing and Social Action Program at California State University, Monterey Bay. So we're in downtown Monterey, and the buildings themselves probably aren't much different from the ones that Steinbeck saw when he was growing up here in the area. He probably came to this cinema, the Golden State Cinema, Golden State Theater. So now we're, in, we're on Cannery Row itself, with the uh, Cannery Row trolley, tooling up and down the street, tourists crossing at their risks. We have the pizzerias, the beer joints, candy companies, and of course, we're standing right now in front of the bust of John Steinbeck, who immortalized Cannery Row with his book titled Cannery Row. You know, I don't know how much profanity Steinbeck used but he's always struck me as kind of a working class kind of guy, and I'm sure that he would have had a few choice phrases for some of the changes that had occurred here in his hometown. I don't think he would have cared for it. So, so John, that's a, a piece from your series called Travels with Mike, where you retrace some of the steps that John Steinbeck took in his uh, Travels with Charlie. Um, we're talking a bit about artifice in reality radio and uh, first of all, we should probably mention that it's it's come out in the years since that book was published, Travels with Charlie, that maybe Steinbeck didn't actually do everything he said in the book. <clears throat> yeah, I, I've been actually uh, exchanging emails in the last couple of days with the fellow who who did some of the writing about that. I, I find it actually uh, not surprising, and, and having read the book, um, I, I, when I read the book, I thought, I, I don't believe... Certainly the dialogue I find um, just too good to be true mm -hmm. often and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So I wasn't particularly uh, troubled by that or, you know, I saw it and he was, he said from the start that it was subjective. 
Uh, I think maybe he, yeah, he could have been a little more honest than that <laughs> um, uh, in saying, you know, uh, but it's clear that some of the characters were composites at best and maybe made up out of whole cloth in some cases. Yeah, I took it as a creative endeavor by a novelist and, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't particularly shocked uh, or troubled by that. On the other hand, uh, what we heard from you is 100% truth, right? <laughs> well, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at least these these people, uh, we you can hear that they actually said it. But yes, I it was it's highly edited and uh, and crafted by me, and I own up to that mm. uh, straightforwardly. Well, let's expose some of your craftsmanship. I noticed that Diana Garcia was talking about the Golden State Theater there, which is downtown Monterey, and she made this seamless transition in the space of a second or two down to Cannery Row. So, yes. so that's one of the illusions that a radio documentary can can give you is moving through yes. space. <laughs> you may have noticed there was a car door slam. Yeah, and just a little bit of a fade. So that was meant to indicate we got in the car and we drove over there and then got out of the car. Uh huh. You're right. That's right. The time compression is certainly something we do very uh, freely as radio producers. How many tracks were we hearing there of of ambient sound, background sound? Uh, uh, probably as many as four or so at a time, including, including, uh, in parts of the piece where there's music, maybe up to five. Right. And so, yes. And obviously like there's the moment in Cannery Row where she says something, there's a little pause and you hear the little girl talking about face paint. Who immortalized Cannery Row with his book titled Cannery Row. You know, I don't know how much... Uh, that didn't happen right in that second. That was put there <laughs> by me in the, in the computer program just to be able to, you know, enhance the, the scene mm-hmm. um, and to make it more interesting to listen to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of uh, manipulation going on. <laughs> oh, I feel so cheapened. Let's go to our last example uh, along this sort of timeline in, in radio styles to a show that's really had a huge impact in the last couple of years and maybe represents one more increment of change in, in style, and that's Radiolab uh, with Jad Abumrad and Robert Krolwich, uh, a show about big ideas in science. And uh, let's give uh, listeners just a taste of, of that sound. If all you've got are your eyes to go on, sleep can seem like... Being well, like, like being off. off, yeah, like offness, right, or worse. Well, uh, both Shakespeare and Cervantes referred to sleep as death. That's Dr. Carlos Schenk. He wrote a great book about sleep called Paradox Lost. We go to we go to bed every night. We die every night, and then we wake up in the morning and we're alive again. And that was the prevailing theory for centuries. For Dr. Schenk, the awakening to just how wrong Shakespeare and Cervantes were about sleep came one day while he was sitting in uh, class for med school. My first year at medical school, this was back in 1972. We had an emeritus professor who actually was a Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Uh, Eccles, John, Sir John Carew Eccles. From Here's what happened. This esteemed lecturer walks into class, uh-huh. pops a cassette into the tape deck, hits play, and out comes this sound. Well, uh, the sound was... Or... Wait a second. Let me get it right. Oh, here we go. And multiply this by 100. This, the professor announced, is the sound of a cat's brain while asleep. My God! 
Shank almost fell out of his seat. This is the brain during sleep? So that was uh, a little excerpt from Radiolab, uh, a program they did on sleep. We heard there the, the producer, Jad Abumrad, and his co-host, Robert Krolwich, engaged in a kind of dialogue interspersed with what are called in the radio business actualities, that is, pieces of tape they've gotten out in the field, uh, in this case, a scientist. And the way they cut this is as though the scientist is sort of part of the dialogue, <laughs> when in fact he wasn't. He was recorded elsewhere and uh, so tightly edited that um, the voices all sort of come together in this long um many-part conversation, along with a lot of sound effects and music. Yeah, it's it's highly produced, and, um, you know, it has this kind of, uh, there's I, this word just comes to mind, I haven't thought of it this way, but almost a kind of verticality where the, the listener is in on it, right? We we understand as a listener what, that they're doing all this in the studio, and that they're not, uh, they're not bringing us real life in a kind of verite sense, but that they've gone out and recorded something, then they're in the studio, and then they also have access to you know sound effects and all kinds of stuff, and that um, they're just layering that, you know, layering that stuff on top of each other, and kind of throwing it all at us in this really engaging and entertaining way. Um, it's it's almost like it's there's a sense in which it's sort of come full circle in being uh, more highly performed, mm. you know, almost taking us back to to the kind of Corwin in the studio, Corwin and John Barrymore in the studio, but with a much, much more uh, uh, informal and kind of conversational and kind of fun tone, uh, but that it has that um, that sort of layered performed style. And also, but, but, but the elements that are being mixed in include, uh, you know, traditional interview and uh, sounds that were recorded of somebody doing something or telling a story. So uh yeah it's it's uh I think this show is, is striking for the combination of information because it's it's really I think in in some ways the greatest strength of the show for me as a listener is it's the show I think that I listen to most and say wow I didn't know that <laughs> imagine that mm-hmm. you know it's just telling you stuff that's fascinating um and the combination of of information on the one hand and this kind of uh wildly imaginative radio making at the same time. Um, you, you mentioned that it is performed, and I think that's a, a good point. Um, Jad Abumrad has a, an essay in your book, Reality Radio, in which he he says that those dialogues between him and Robert Krolwich are partly scripted. There's some spontaneity, but by no means do they just walk into the studio and start chattering away. And there's so many other elements uh, that are composed. In fact, Jad's background is uh, he studied music composition in college, and you can hear that it's it's a real composition that show, you know. Yes, that's uh, right. And 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 I have to confess, for my ear, it's a little busy. Uh, I don't need a sound effect to tell me that the hmm. word death, for instance, is like an important word. So I don't need a big thud when someone says death, and I don't need to hear, oh, if someone mentions the ocean, I don't need to hear ocean waves at that instant. And so that's, <laughs> that's my little carp about it. But how do, how do you feel about the overall sound density of the show, which is extremely, um, well, it's extremely dense, lots of sound. Yeah, I like it. Uh, you know, the, I, I may have an occasional moment of thinking, well, that was unnecessary, unnecessary. <laughs> but that particular sound effect or whatever, or, you know, could you uh, give me another half second to 
to digest what you just said before going on to the next thing. But <laughs> over, uh, on the whole, I, I, I find it very engaging, uh, done with a great spirit of fun. And I would add that um, my children, who are uh, they're now 14 and 12, uh, but I think even going back maybe three years when may, maybe they were 11 and 8 or, you know, 12 and 10, that Radio Lab was the one public radio show that I could I could get them interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, they, they, they aren't interested in news stuff, in part because they don't have the kind of uh, knowledge about the world and about history to, for it to be very meaningful to them. They aren't taken by this American life, maybe because that's a little too subtle and maybe they don't know enough about life to find, you know, those kinds of stories engaging. Radio Lab, they love, and they'll sit there and listen. And, and I think partly the kind of that uh, slightly f- frenetic and kind of highly produced quality is part of what works for young people. Mm, mm. Um, I, I noticed, too, that uh, Abu Murad and, and Krolwich have found another solution to the uh, the narration problem. That is the, the problem of, uh, you know, an authoritative narrator removed from the action. Instead, they have a little dialogue, and in fact, their dialogue... Mm-hmm often includes the participation of people who aren't there. <laughs> so it all becomes a <laughs> right. big back and right. forth, you know, which makes right. it and feel th- natural. Yeah. And that, interestingly, though, is something that Krolwich was doing 25 years ago. It's, which is, you know, where true, he would yeah. he would be doing this very engaging and sort of high-energy narration, and he would just drop in a couple of words from his interview, you know, to sort of complete a sentence. And so... Yeah, you know, between him and uh, just a master of of radio making for decades, and and Jad, who is oh, I think thirty something, and just a brilliant guy, they've really got they've really got uh, something going on there. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you paid tribute to to Robert Krolwich because he did create this sound that people now identify with Radiolab a long time ago. Well, I. I- yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think Jad gets some credit too, and especially for things like I, I think Jad has brought a lot to it as well. But there are elements of it that that Krolwich has been doing for many, many years. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think you've qualified it in just the right way. <laughs> well, well, John, um, we've we've made our way from sort of the early proto documentaries in the 1940s to contemporary documentaries. Uh, like yours and and like this American life, I'm curious to know if you ever sit down and just sort of speculate on what what's next. What's the next step in the evolution of the radio documentary? It's a great question, and if if I knew, I I guess I'd you know I'd be out there doing it. Um, I know some young producers who are trying to figure out how can I do a more pure audio verite. Mm-hmm. You know, a verite that's less manipulated, that doesn't have even, uh, you know, the subject sort of narrating. Um, but then, but you know, generally, it's just very hard to do that and make it work because the listener doesn't know what's going on, and raw life usually isn't all that interesting, which is why we edit it and assemble it in the way that we do traditionally. So, you know, I think there are people kind of reaching for what's next. But, you know, like I said, if I if I knew I'd, I'd, you know, I'd probably be able to play you example, an example from my own work that that's doing it. And I can't. Well, John, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. I really enjoyed your book as well. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Robert. And that book is Reality Radio, Telling True Stories in Sound. John Bewin heads the audio program at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.
This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And check us out on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.